scat It's better because of you and that's a fact We're in this together, you and I We're in this together, you and I Welcome to You'll Understand When You're Younger I'm Jordan And I'm Brian And we're a father and son who like scouring the corners of the internet for information and sharing it with each other. And for the next 40-ish minutes, that's exactly what we're going to do. You ready, Dad? I'm ready. Chapter 1, A Weekly Question. So, Jordan, uh, where is the worst smelling place that you've been? I saw this question, and I didn't know right off the bat. It was a thinker, but... I remembered that last year when I was living with uh, four other guys uh, in our apartment, we had two bathrooms and two people on one end would use one bathroom and three of us on the other end would use the other bathroom. And uh, the people who used the other bathroom clogged their toilet with toilet paper. Oh, man. And we didn't have a plunger because we (laughs) we had... five sets of silverware but zero plungers when we moved in and so Fork doesn't cut it that's right the guy the guy who clogged it was tasked with the responsibility of buying a plunger good so he walks down to walgreens and he looks at the plunger options and he decides they're all too expensive because at <laughs> walgreens the plunger is 11 dollars <laughs> and he doesn't have a car so he decides he's gonna let it simmer and just use our bathroom <laughs> while the water naturally decreases. Well, this is a process that takes days, right? Oh, seriously? This is a process that takes days. And so they keep using our bathroom, and the toilet is clogged, and the water is high, and that <laughs> itself smelled bad, okay? If you can imagine it, that itself smelled I don't bad. want to. If you can imagine it, that itself smelled bad. But the door was shut, so it was fine. However, we got really frustrated with them using our bathroom because it was five dudes sharing one bathroom, sharing the shower, sharing the toilet, all because one guy wouldn't spend $11 on a plunger. (laughs) And so one day, one of the roommates who uses the other bathroom, our bathroom, says, that's it, you're buying a plunger if you don't. Uh, buy it in the next 24 hours, it's going to start smelling real bad on your end of the apartment because I'm pouring this <laughs> half gallon of expired milk on top of the water in the toilet. <laughs> and we all laugh because we think he's he's telling a joke, of course. And then we all go to sleep, I think rather drunkenly that night. And I wake up on the floor uh, for reasons I can't explain. And it is like... It is the worst place I've ever smelled. I wake up and I immediately have to vomit. And not because not because I'm hungover, but because it reeks of expired milk, which is one of the most rancid smells in all of existence. So then I'm like, why the heck does it smell in here? Why does it smell in here? And I'm trying to locate the smell while also like trying to not uh, involuntarily vomit. And I... I walk over to the closed bathroom door and I was like, if that's what their shit smells like, they need to go see a doctor. I open the bathroom and I look in the toilet and there's curdled milk floating on the top 
of the of the plugged toilet. And then I did vomit in the sink. And I left the apartment and I called my roommate and I said, I can't believe you freaking did that. I cannot believe that you poured that milk in there. I'm not returning to this apartment until the place does not smell and the toilet is not clogged. And uh, the guy who clogged the toilet went and bought the $11 plunger that day. A couple of days late. So I do have to <laughs> ask you. So he bought, he bought the plunger, which is great. He, he coughed up the 11 bucks. Yeah. But how long did you have to stay away or how long did you stay away from there? Because I can't imagine that smell dissipated anytime soon. I went to, to Taylor's apartment, my brother, your son, your other son. And, uh, and I was there with the dog all day. I did not come home until I think like 7 p.m. And they were eating pizza. Was- they were hanging out. The smell was gone. They had opened the windows and stuff. And it was winter, so so it was a sacrifice. We had to reheat the entire apartment, you know. Oh, my God. Oh, that's that's awesome. I love that. How about that you? is a great story. <laughs> Do you have a worse smelling yeah. place that you've been? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I don't know if mine can compete, but it was disgusting. So uh, I work in IT. And so we have customers across various different spectrums of industries. We have people that are in the financial industry, people who are in, um, you know, manufacturing, things of that nature. But we also had one particular client that was in a recycling industry. And when you think recycling, you're typically thinking, you know, paper recycling. You could even think uh, things like oil and, uh, you know, recycling of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. These guys were very unique. And it is something that I've never heard anyone doing uh, before or since, these guys recycled old uh, bread, old donuts, basically anything that had yeast in it. So you can start just thinking that way. Uh, you know that that old pr- products that have maybe expired uh, in terms of bread. I mean, it's not quite as bad as milk, but uh, it starts to get pretty bad there. Yes, it does. So, yeah, so so this this client, the way that they got stuff was that they reached out to all the donut shops in the Minneapolis area. And a lot of the bakeries and said, hey, if you guys are looking for a place to get rid of your expired goods, we will take them. And again, that seems like a great business model until you really realize what happens when that stuff uh, comes uh, into a specific building. They went ahead and gathered all this stuff and uh, put it into a mound. And when I say a mound, I'm not talking like something that's two or three feet high. I'm talking 30, 40 feet of bread. Not only is it just like bread, but expired bread, moldy, blue bread that's got black mold, blue mold, all that kind of stuff. Donuts with jelly in it and just just rotting. I mean, it just sits in this mound. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's the biggest compost uh, I've ever seen in my life. And you start thinking about that. It's like, yeah, that could be a little disgusting. The problem is it's when you actually go inside the building and you're not anywhere near this bread at this point or this, this rotting composting material. You're That's outside and it's I mean, probably you know 500 yards away from where you're at. But it has permeated because of the, just the rancidness of it has permeated throughout the whole building. And so, so no matter where you like went, moldy and disgusting, rotting food. That and and it smells like um, when you leave a bar at you know bar time and you're getting ready to go and you just smell that that beer that's the been on the beer, ground. Yeah. <laughs> that is the oh. other on top of it. That's what you smell, and it's just disgusting. And and the worst part is that, like I said, it permeates 
the the whole everything that there is. And so you don't really realize this until you start doing a few things. So we were doing uh, a, a project there, and one of the guys uh, who works on my team was uh, helping to set up some new servers. This is years and years ago, so there was no virtual machine type stuff. This is actual physical servers. And he was hungry, and they, they were getting ready to you know talk about ordering food. It's probably 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. So they've been working for a long time. He starts thinking, man, I, I don't know if I can eat with this smell going around. I mean, you talked about having pizza. That's what they're going to order. And he's like, I just don't think I can do that. Yeah. So he remembered seeing a dish of candy, wrapped candy, you know, like, you know, butterscotch candies or what have you sitting at the front desk. He's like, you know what? I can get through the next couple of hours if I just have a piece of candy. He goes down, unwraps the piece of the candy, puts it into his mouth and gagged and gagged and gagged because the candy tasted like he was oh, eating because it had been sitting the, in the air yes and it had absorbed and it, it, the smell absolutely that disgusting is disgusting that is disgusting that's like drinking expired milk which is <laughs> disgusting well and the worst part about it was when you left this place that smell permeated into your garments so your clothes smelled like it so you didn't just get out of there and it was gone like kind of like when you went to Taylor's apartment, you didn't have to deal with the smell. Right. You're driving home smelling this and it's in there. And the other piece of this that makes it, and this isn't the smell, but it just kind of helps you understand how disgusting the whole process was. When you went out to your car, there were little globules of fat that looked like, you know, drops of rain, but they were actual globules of fat from the burning that they had done Ooh. from all of the uh, expired material. Oh man. And so that That's was on your car. Sanitary. Yeah, it was it was uh so this place reeked. It was the worst smelling place I've ever been, number one. But it also just assaulted all of your senses. Taste, smell, touch, Ooh. everything Ooh. was part of it. So yeah, that's uh, not good. And the, and the fact that it sticks on you is like that Seinfeld episode with the, the guy in the BO <laughs> in the car, the valet. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That that episode actually remind me, I'm like, huh, I wonder if the, if, if the Seinfeld writers have been to this place because there's, I mean, ugh, it was gross. So uh, I think that in terms of uh, discussing this, they were both disgusting. I think your story was funnier, but uh, they were both gross. Uh, I, sure. I would not trade mine for years, that's for sure. Especially <laughs> if it's a place where I'm required to spend time. I had the option to leave five minutes you know, after realizing <laughs> what had happened. Whereas you guys were were sitting there all day. That's multiple uh, times, unfortunately. We did a lot of business with this company, so I don't uh, know if I could handle that. I would have we, to. I would have to tap out on that one. So, so we had special clothes that you wore when you went there. Yeah, so your smelly clothes. <laughs> yep, and you took them off in the in the garage and ran in and showered. Uh, didn't matter if it was midday in mid workday. Doesn't matter. You're going home and showering. Taking a shower. Oh man, that's crazy. Chapter two, the feature story. All right. This week, I decided that we are going to talk about 5G because I saw a rash of articles that uh, United uh, Arab Emirates, the, the plain people, they are not, sorry, that's the country, Emirates flights, <laughs> uh, whatever it is. What are they called? Fly Emirates. There it is. I was right. Uh, Fly Emirates, they um, they grounded a bunch of 777s because Verizon turned their 5G towers online. And right. 
I was curious why that would be. I had a general guess. You know, we have to put our our phones in airplane mode when we're flying anyway, uh, because of the the instruments that the plane uses to fly. But I wanted to know what specifically it was about five G that was different uh, that caused them to ground some things. Whether that would be cause for concern, because people are already um, mostly jokingly, but a, a little bit afraid of five G. And I think Tin hats. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I, I want to validate them because 5G might in fact kill you, but not the way your QAnon uncle thinks that it will. Uh, <laughs> not because it's going to give you cancer uh, or anything like that, but it might ruin the altimeter on, your, on the plane that you're flying on. And uh, if your flight has the wrong altitude calculated, then landing is going to be a little rough. So, uh, so I have a question for you yeah. before you get into that. The first question is, so you, you mentioned, you know, we're required to put our phones into airplane mode. So what percentage of people do you think actually put their phones into airplane mode when we're supposed to put it in airplane mode? And I don't mean like uh, put your, your phone into airplane mode and they do it, but before you take off and, and actually get in the air, what, what percentage of people do you think actually do that? If I had to guess, I would think four in five people obey the instruction and put it in airplane mode. But I think right. that elderly people in particular do not, don't do it from my observation. And then people who just don't understand how the internet works, maybe not because they're elderly, but because they just don't get it. And uh, so they turn on airplane mode and then they realize that they can't check their Instagram. So they turn it off. And then in the flight, they can't check their Instagram anyway, because they don't actually get any cell service up there. And they don't leave it on. What would be your guess? I was going to actually say that a greater percentage than 20% uh, leave it on. I was going to say something around 65 to 70% of the people do put airplane mode on, but 30% um, uh, do not put airplane mode on. I think that's and, reasonable. Yeah, I know that's not much of a difference. But when we're talking about the number of people, the number of flights, especially as we start getting into what you're talking about from a 5G perspective, that could that could be an issue. So sorry to interrupt. I just was curious to see what your thoughts were on that. Don't don't. It's not interrupting. Uh, ask ask questions anytime. Of course, uh, that's the whole point. This is not a this is not a class. I just wanted to talk about uh, electromagnetic waves because I got to put this electrical engineering degree to good use, right? That's good. Your your parents' money that helped to pay for that. Uh, I'm I'm glad to hear and, that you're and uh, the federal it. government. Hey hey. Well yes, thank you, thank you, yeah. Uncle Sam. Yeah, thanks for that loan that I got to pay back, Joe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it all comes down to the frequency band that 5G is at. So okay. Maybe I should explain how cell phone towers work first, and then I can. Uh... Yeah, I was going to ask you one of the things. I'm I'm assuming you're going to, you are going to answer this piece of it, but what is the difference? Not necessarily between 4G and 5G, because you know yeah. 4G means fourth generation, 5G is fifth generation. But what is the actual technical difference, and why would 5G be different than 4G? That's that's a great question, and we to to understand how that works. First, we need to do a history lesson, and then we need to do a science lesson. So All first, right. we'll, good. we'll start with history. Way back when, uh, Nikola Tesla 
decided that wireless power could be transferred if you oscillated current. Now, what current is, is if you've ever stuck a fork in a toaster, or if you've ever stuck a fork in an outlet, or if you've ever stuck a fork anywhere that you were told not to, um, that's current. Except for unless it's your brother's arm. (laughs) Right, too. Although humans do carry electric current, that's how our heart beats. Um, so in a way, yes, but you're, it's, you're not going to get shocked by stabbing your brother. Your brother will be shocked. Um, (laughs) but for a different reason, (laughs) anyway, he never built it, but he believed that you could wirely transmit power, uh, which is something that we're exploring again these days, uh, but still hasn't really been built. Uh, so he made the Tesla coil, and that can power a light bulb um, by turning direct current into high-frequency oscillations or waves. You can think of waves like the ocean. Um, a lot of people have the misconception that uh, the the waves of the ocean is water that's moving from the center of the ocean to the shore. But in fact, it's just oscillating up and down, and the water never moves at all. Energy moves through the water. What? So- Oh, hold on, hold on. Sorry, uh, th- 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 that that right there blows my mind. What do you what are you talking about? The water doesn't move. It it that no, that, <laughs> that, can't, that can't be true. So so think about a still pond, and then okay. think about throwing a pebble as high as you can in the air and it landing in the middle of that pond. Sure. Then the water creates ripples, right? And they yep. go from wherever the pebble hit the water all the way to the shoreline. Sure. The water never moved. Energy that you created uh, by uh, having the gravitational force drop the pebble into the water created energy that moved through the water and propagated outward. And that's what we call a wave. And these same things happen. They're visible in water, but these same things happen in gases like air. So... By forcing energy into the air, you could say, at a certain frequency, you can transmit data or power, energy, basically. So that's how we're doing cell towers. That's how we do everything, yeah. So the first, the first way that we actually applied it, beyond the Tesla coil, uh, which if you haven't seen one of those, you should Google it for sure, was at low, very low frequency bands, and that was radio, AM radio specifically. Sure. Now, people my age might not know much about AM radio, but I'm guessing you do, and it's it's still puttering around out there. And uh, do you know the difference between AM and FM radio, Dad? Besides- well, if I'm remembering correctly, I, I won't be able to get the science piece yeah, of it. Yeah, not although, the science. Uh, AM radio waves are longer waves, and thus they can travel further. So one of the things that I remember when I was a kid, speaking of AM radio, uh, I happen to be a sports fan. So one of the things that I could do at night, this was mostly at night, and and maybe you understand why it was at night versus during the daytime that it was more effective. I think think a lot of it was there wasn't as much traffic in the air because a lot of the FM stations used to have like a, a time that they could be up and running. Uh, but the AM radio stations did not have that time, and it had to do with the different way that the waves in the AM radio worked. So you could listen to a, a, a baseball game from St. Louis 
when you were in Minneapolis. So there's a, a station in St. Louis called KMOX, and they broadcast all the Cardinals games. And uh, I'm a Cubs fan, and so if the Cubs are playing the Cardinals, I could, I could sometimes get WGN, but but not not super well. And I think that's probably because of uh, you know so, so many stations in Chicago, where St. Louis was a little more in the I don't want to out in the country, but a little more open area. Uh, you could get the Cardinals games on KMOX in Minneapolis, uh, which is kind of crazy to to think about. But I think that's what the difference is, right? Is that they have a little bit longer of a wave uh, versus FM. That's exactly right, Dad. So uh, the property, three properties of waves are uh, frequency, wavelength, and bandwidth. Okay, and those are all fancy words. But um, wavelength is what you're talking about, and it's inverse sure. of frequency. So AM is a low frequency radio transmission, has a longer wavelength, which means it has sure. a longer range. Because uh, things with a shorter wavelength are more likely to bounce off of objects that they run into. So FM doesn't have as good of range, but it has higher quality because it's at a higher frequency and has a wider range of frequencies, which means it has a better bandwidth. Okay. So, so... So I'm so I just real just to clarify, just so I can make sure I understand that the way I think of that maybe potentially is in terms of again I'm in IT so the way I think of that is maybe uh, AM radio you know it sends the the packets and it's maybe not a you know you know it's not a you know one gig network but it's got constant packets whereas FM can can be the one gig network but it is more susceptible to dropped packets which is why. Uh, it needs to be sending stuff more often, or am I kind of mixing it up? Uh, you're you're kind of right. Um, it it is more susceptible to dropped packets, uh, and they but they also use a wider frequency band because you can okay. imagine the difference between 100 hertz and 1,000 hertz, uh, which is the the listening range for humans, uh, is very small compared to the difference between 1,000 hertz and 10,000 hertz. Okay. So all of these AM radio transmissions are uh, relayed on a bandwidth of a couple hundred hertz. And then if you want to start transmitting more data, like FM, you need it to transmit over a wider range, and you can also do that at a higher rate, which means you can transmit more information. So we started with AM. We moved on to FM, uh, and then we started moving on to microwaves, which is a instrument in your kitchen, but it's also a type of wave. And microwaves, the kitchen appliance, use high-frequency waves to transmit energy through your food. And the movement of that through the food is what cooks it. And right. uh you can use that stuff over longer ranges as well. You can transmit higher frequency waves over longer ranges. Uh, and if you want something like a cell phone to work, as as we know it today, you need to use these higher frequency options because you're trying to send more data and you need more bandwidth. Gotcha. And that led to the creation of cell towers, starting with 2G, uh, which operated not on the kilohertz range like FM radio, but the gigahertz range, because there's a lot of people with phones, there's a lot of data that they're trying to encode, and it needs to travel at a relatively fast speed. The downside 
of using a higher frequency, of course, is that shorter wavelength. So you have to build sure. more towers. So when they first started with 2G, they could have picked any frequency at all, but they calculated how many towers they would need to build to serve every person in America if it was at a 1.9 gigahertz frequency, and they said, okay, this is it. This is what we're doing. Nobody could have predicted that when Steve Jobs came out with the iPhone, uh, that the internet usage on phones would become integral to daily life because BlackBerry had already added internet to phones, but it was for the privileged few, and a lot of people did not see that becoming a wide use case. Right. But the amount of information that we expect from Snapchat, from Facebook, from Instagram, and from Safari as well as uh, the boring old functions like text and phone, require a lot of bandwidth. And the more people who use the band, the slower the speeds that we see for, for our internet on our phone or any kind of wireless information transmission. And sure. so the companies keep moving on to different bandwidths that can transmit more data faster to keep up with the demand of users. Gotcha. So then 3G is at a slightly higher frequency, I think 2.2 gigahertz. 4G is in the upper twos and 5G, or sorry, I think 4G was in uh, in the upper twos and lower threes and 5G is in the upper threes. So talking 3.6 gigahertz to 3.9 gigahertz. And, uh, and the issue with that is the wavelength of these waves starts to get so small that it will reflect off of everyday objects like buildings and cars and roads. And so they have to build a lot of towers. Specifically in cities, they have to build 5G towers, which is what people are afraid of. Because historically, in the past, uh, your cell phone tower wasn't something that you see and interact with. And now they're building them everywhere, and people are going, why are they building this 5G tower here? They must <laughs> be trying to inflict cancer on me. Uh, but the truth is, the the faster our internet becomes uh, on our phones, any kind of radio transmission, the more towers we're going to have to have, which is why it takes a longer time to roll out each time they do a new generation. Uh, and uh, the other problem is that all of our bandwidth chunks are controlled by the government and they assign them to different people. And so... Airplane altimeters use 4.0 gigahertz to 4.2 gigahertz ah, for transmission. And 5G uses 3.6 to 3.9 gigahertz transmission. Uh -huh. Could be a little overlap. That's right. And, uh, and the thing that you have to remember with a wave is that it shoots in all directions uh, from where it is being um, propagated from. So there's a Z component an X component and a Y component. And so even though the planes are up in the air, they're communicating with devices on the ground and you can get interference at certain frequencies. However, the the big carriers have been testing their equipment and finding that it operates mostly fine and that the grounding is unnecessary. Uh, I'm wondering, however, if the more people who end up with 5G signals and the more 5G towers that they build, if there will be more interference on the line uh, that will affect plane altimeters. And in that case, they're going to have to develop an altimeter on an even higher frequency bandwidth 
which will require upgrades to planes uh, and also a lot of R&D effort. Uh, so that as well as higher uh, tickets for me to get someplace, I bet. Yes, probably it'll translate to that. Uh, even though tickets, I think, mostly rely on the cost of jet fuel at any given time. Um, so, so when you think about this, yeah, uh, aren't there places in the world that actually have five G five G rolled out pretty pretty uh, ubiquitously? I thought that places in Europe it had it all over the place, but maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken there. I was thinking that you know places in France and Germany and and Switzerland and stuff had five G pretty 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 well covered. Uh, you might know better than I, and it's also highly possible that different regulators assign different bans for 5G usage. So, uh, you, mean, you mean outside the U.S. it could be different than what it is here? Totally. So, gotcha. So Verizon, their C-band operates, yeah, from 3.6 to 3.9 gigahertz. Um, but maybe in Europe it's lower, or maybe the altimeters that they put in the Airbus planes don't use a frequency that's close to it. I mean, I could be making that up in just in my head. I thought for sure that there, that it was, I mean, Europe's ahead of us on everything, right? So, uh, yeah, sure. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody knows Europe is the innovative capital of the world, not China or Japan or uh, the United States. So, yes. so, so as, as they're rolling 5g out across the U S and I know that's now I makes a little more sense as to why it's taking so long because they have to have so many towers, a lot more, uh, so when you're traveling and you go to New York, you may have 5G everywhere, right? Because they've already got that stuff set up and you know, they're able to put the towers up in downtown New York in a different way than they are out in the, in the range, uh, in the open sky country like, like Montana. Um, so, so in your mind, as we have T-Mobile and Verizon and AT&T trying to talk about, they've got the most 5G coverage. Are they really talking about real 5G, like what we're talking about here? Or are they talking about some type of synthetic 5G that is, they can call it 5G, but it's really not? I, I'd be curious on that because it seems like this 5G rollout, like you said, it's going to take a while. But I honestly think that it's been going for like 10 years. Yeah. Well, first, let me clear up a misconception there. It's actually harder to roll out 5G to a place like New York because there's okay. more obstructions. So the way that okay. they roll that out is a little bit different. Um, they might even use even like higher frequencies and very small spaced apart 5G antennas. Because if you roll out a regular 5G antenna that is getting reflected off all of the buildings then that's a very costly endeavor. So there's an actually thing. There's actually a thing called five uh, G millimeter wave, uh, which okay. which is again like a, a super high frequency uh, that they've also added to our phone antennas um, that can work in those urban situations where the the restrictions are even tighter. So they're just throwing an antenna on anything they can to transmit five G in a place like that. However. On an open range where there's no obstructions at all, a wave can travel its ideal distance, which still is shorter than an AM radio, but there's fewer obstructions, so there's much lower chance of drop packets, Got right? It. That makes sense. That makes sense. The problem with that is people don't live on the open range. People live in New York. <laughs> and so when they're bragging about their area coverage, they are bragging about metropolitan areas because that's where they have to spend their investment because that's where people are. Sure. Once all of the urban areas are done, 
it'll be easy for them to roll out true 5G into the countryside if they see that it's worth the investment to brag uh, over their competitors. But LTE is pretty good. Uh, like yeah. the, the difference between um, 3G and 4G and 4G and LTE was massive. Like sure. it, it was from you sitting in the car trying to Google something and it taking three minutes and then maybe it would time out to unless you have absolutely no coverage whatsoever, you can Google something from anywhere. Video streaming is a little bit different, but you can Google sure. something from anywhere, right? Except for where I live right now, and you've been here a few times, so if we don't have wireless going on our home internet, we can't Google squat because yeah. we got no coverage. Well, Or the don't. antennas down here, my friend. We yeah. don't live out in the country. I don't think... I mean, you guys are on the edge of, uh, of suburban Phoenix. The mountains are about 10 minutes from you, so you, you in a way, are on the edge of, of civilized society. Uh, All right. It's great, but they I can't wait to tell other people that. I mean, that's why you pay the price for your home that you do because you're far away from other people. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, they could stand to put in a tower where you're at. But the difference between 4G and and 5G will be less distinct to the average user. Video streaming on cellular will be much easier. However they're not really changing data use limits. So people aren't going to be able to stream a bunch of video just because their phone is capable of doing it until cell providers also change the plans that they offer people. Wait, uh, hold on. You're trying to tell me that my unlimited plan isn't really unlimited? I just got the notification today that I've already used 16.5 gigabytes of, of, uh, of data this cycle. Uh, and I've also noticed a weird thing where my phone does not auto connect to my Wi-Fi, even though it's set to. I have to go into settings and remind it to connect, which is I think is interesting. I don't know if that's a a bug with Apple software or if it's my router, but anyway, uh, interesting. yeah, mine doesn't do that. So, so getting back to your original topic, uh, why is it that this is going to potentially kill us, and not in the way that uh, our QAnon uncles uh, think it will? Yeah, well, let's suppose that uh, they did all the checks and they think the equipment runs fine and they roll out the 5G and they haven't invested any time into making an altimeter that operates at a different uh, frequency. At some point, the traffic on the 5G waves could get intense enough that it actually does randomly interfere with an altimeter. So uh, the more and more popular... Yeah, nobody... Uh, the more and more popular 5G becomes, the further you might want to stay away from air travel until they announce that they have uh, fixed the issue. But while they're ignoring it, and while 5G isn't rolled out, it's business as usual. I can't wait to be on that plane going, well, we just hit the 5G towers. Let's cross our fingers and hope that it doesn't affect our altimeter. I suppose, so, so, so just a point of clarity here. R- really what that's affecting, like you said, is the altimeters. But when you're flying in the plane at 35,000 feet, it's not affecting it there as so much. I mean, it is in theory, but it's really when you're taking off and landing and yes. more specifically landing in which it's important. Uh, right. Taking off, yes, that's great. I mean, you, but it's when you're landing and that's where if we have traffic like we do in Atlanta, in Chicago, um, New York, 
uh, and they have planes coming in and out every 10 seconds, the landing portion uh, is ultra, it's always critical, but it's even more critical there because you have somebody coming right behind you. So if you have any issues, uh, that next person might have issues as well, correct? Yeah, that, but it just doesn't even matter uh, if there's anybody behind you because if you're a pilot of a plane and every everyone uses autopilot now, that's just how it works. You don't do manual landings, right? Um, if the altimeter is being read by the computer as being, let's say it thinks you're elevated 400 feet in the air, but you're actually uh, 200 feet in the air, I mean... <laughs> You're just taking a much rougher landing. Uh, again, the, this is not a problem that people are going to have. I don't need to freak anybody out. It was more a joke um, that 5G could kill you. Uh, it could if they don't fix this problem, but of course they will. Uh, and Boeing has already said that it shouldn't shouldn't be an issue. So will this be as much of a non-issue as Y2K was? Uh, I think Y2K is a much bigger deal than the rollout of 5G, but people are nostalgic, so they're turning 5G into uh, into a Y2K type of scenario. Gotcha, gotcha. Awesome. Well, thanks for educating me on that. Appreciate yeah, of course. It. Chapter 3, This Week in Media. Okay, so now we're we're moved on. We've we've moved on from our feature story, and we are we're talking about this week in media. How about you get us started, uh, Dad? Tell tell me what what you want to share this week. What you consume? Yeah, so uh, you know I consider media to be multiple different uh, mediums, if you will. Uh, you know, TV, music, movies, and books. And so for this week, I wanted to just chat about a book that I just started reading that I'm uh, just a little ways into it. I'm probably about uh, 100 pages into the book, and it's about 500 pages. It's called Undaunted Courage. And it is a biography written by Stephen Ambrose. And you may have heard that name. He's the author of the book Band of Brothers, which was obviously turned into an HBO series uh, about uh, 21 years ago. But he wrote this book, Undaunted Courage, about Meriwether Lewis. And it's one of those topics where, I mean, everyone knows who uh, Lewis and Clark is, or at least they've heard the names, right. but not everybody knows about uh, either of them uh, individually or together so much. And so I really enjoy Stephen Ambrose writing, and I am curious, you know, always about history. And so I thought it'd be great to dive into a little bit more about Lewis and Clark and more specifically Lewis. Uh, since he comes first in the in the in the uh, naming convention right. there, but uh, more so uh, because he seems to be a very interesting character uh, based on the time in which this all occurred. So uh, so far, I'm thoroughly enjoying the book. Uh, you know, some people who you know maybe think history can be a little bit dry. This is not written in any way dryly. Uh, Stephen Ambrose is a very accomplished writer, and he does a great job of of making the pages come to life. One of the things he talks about at the beginning in his forward is the research that he did was to go in and read all of the journals that Meriwether Lewis had written during his, uh, his whole campaign uh, across um, the, uh, the United States. And so he read all of, the, all of the daily journals so he could get a flavor of who Meriwether Lewis was. And he read some of the other biographies, and he really felt that he could bring something different to the table than the other ones had done, uh, especially since the, the, the most recent one previous to him writing was about 30 years previous, and they had found some additional writings from Meriwether Lewis 
and some additional writings from of some of his contemporaries. So thoroughly enjoying it. I'll probably give you guys another update here in a few weeks when I get a little bit further into it. But so far, it's 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 been good. And uh, just based on the first, you know, 90, 100 pages, I would absolutely recommend it to anybody who has an interest in history, number one. Number two, uh, if you have any interest in the writings of Stephen Ambrose. Um, so, yeah, check that stuff out for sure. Jordan, how about you? Uh, talk to me about media this week for yourself. Yeah, well, uh, th- this week uh, I finally took the dive and decided to watch the the first uh, part of the newly released uh, Ozark season four. So excellent, excellent. You know, because Ozark is is one of your favorite shows as well. I do like it. I do um, like it. That it that it's in its last season and they're releasing it in two parts. So they released the first part and it's, I think seven episodes and I watched them all. And, uh, I gotta say, man, I'm ready for it to be done. It was, Oh, it was, it was good, but it's hard to watch because of the vibe of the show. Like, okay. So explain to me what you mean by that. I'm curious. And, so, and, and before you dive into that, uh, just kind of a warning. Uh, we, we may talk about some specifics of the season four, part one. So there could be some spoilers. I just want to make sure you guys understand that uh, before warned. Yeah. Uh, I'll try and avoid any plot specific points. But it's it's a hard show to watch because it doesn't paint the Ozarks in a flattering light by design. It and makes you've been it, there. Yes, I've been there, and uh, they do a fair job of capturing it. But mm-hmm. some of it, there's the hopelessness of everybody within the story, right? They they sure. all are stuck in this place for one reason or another, whether they're money laundering or they were born into it, uh, or they're trying to gain some sort of political capital, or they're a drug lord who's dealing with people there. But they're all kind of just stuck in this place, and it seems like a kind of Sisyphus kind of thing where they they roll the the boulder Great up the tragedy. mountain and uh, and drop it all the way back down just as they're getting to the top. That's that's the the writing scheme that they seem to use. And four yep. seasons in, it gets really heavy and depressing. And then the s- second component of it is. Uh, the color that they use, like the mm. the the vibe that they they color correct into it or uh, color wash. I, I'm trying to think of the the right word. Anyway, like the colorization of it, basically. They use cool tones for everything. So they, absolutely, yep. They shot it very flat, and then they edited it to be blue and dark and gloomy, yep. and it probably shouldn't affect me as much as it does but when i'm just watching seven episodes straight you know one a day you can't do that man no no, no no not a binge but one a day oh, or two a day like, dude. uh without uh without any other show to cleanse my palate it gets a yeah, little you need bit some comedy yeah it gets a little bit just down in the dumps kind of gloomy oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. um and so that that was my struggle and I also think that the fourth season, part one, while good, uh, just doesn't stack up uh, with the first. I think the first two seasons are, are really amazing. I think yep, that was probably their best work. 
and I'm glad yeah. to see that they're they're tying up the storylines now. Uh, and they've certainly kept it. They haven't gone offbeat. They haven't done anything that I didn't expect them to do, uh, which I like. I like when I kind of know the course of the show and, and it all makes sure. sense. But I think that it's time time for them to tie things up down in the Ozarks. So, yeah. So, so I'm going to agree with a couple things there. Uh, it, it absolutely is dark, and uh, the way that they film it really kind of brings you into that mood. It's definitely one of those things where when you're done uh, watching that, you need some some comedy or some light, something light, some music that's lighter. I don't know. It's, it can certainly bring you down. I mean, don't don't be having a, an adult beverage while you're watching that thing. That's going to just bring you even deeper in. No kidding. The other thing I'll agree with you on is that um, season four definitely is stronger than season three. Season three by far was the weakest season. I did not like the way that it ended. I thought it was kind of uh, silly the way they ended it. Um, and they kind of painted themselves into a corner uh, with how they had to start uh, season four. And I think that they they did a good job of of um, painting themselves out of the corner, if that's a term, uh, with the way they did part one, uh, which is good. But it definitely um, is dark. The one thing, and this is not a spoiler, the one thing that just I totally had forgotten that just grossed me out, and I remembered it, you know, ten minutes in was. Darlene and, uh, and, and Wyatt. Wyatt, come on. Oh my God. Is there a more disgusting couple? And I don't mean, they, I don't mean they that, do gratuitous, oh. they do gratuitous PDA there too. Oh my God. Like they really wanted you to feel it. They really oh. wanted you to feel the disgust because I did. There I did. was a moment there where they were locked lips for oh. a good 45 seconds. And I, was like, when is this gonna end? Like, yeah, why? Like, why can't they do a peck on the cheek or something? <laughs> That's not Darlene. She's passionate. Mm, yeah. Yep. She oh, is. Man. So that yes, was, that was disgusting. I tried to stay away from the incest because it hurts me to even think about, or not incest. Sorry. Well, the, it could have been. Who knows? I mean, the, it is the immense, <laughs> the immense age gap, uh, verging on pedophilia. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you wanted to hit the 15 second speed up on there, but the fear was that if if you hit it too many times, you were going to pass up something that, that might have been a key plot point, and then you'd have to reverse no. it and then see everything again. I knew that's the worst thing. I knew I oh. could have skipped, but it's one of those things where you're so horrified that they like that a, they're doing it in the first place that that you're like, how long are they willing to let this go on? Oh. Kind of scenario, and they yeah, really awful. they gave it a good. A good forty-five seconds of screen time. Yeah, yeah so was, I agree. Awesome. Uh, so Ozark yeah. season four um, worth, so, so worth a watch. One, if one you've last already seen question, and this isn't specific to season four, but just Ozarks in general. Ozark in general. Uh, characters of of the main characters. Uh, you, you know who's who's your favorite character in the show, and who's your favorite actor slash actress in the show? And we'll, we'll we'll keep this to the Bird family. And the language. Hey, you don't get to limit it. I get to list. Well, I get to I, list I whatever character I want. I get it, but the reason why I'm trying to limit it is I don't want you to pick a character that might that might only show up in season four, part one. Um, and I, maybe we can spoil, spoil it for people. It doesn't matter. All right, that's fine. Fair enough. Who's your favorite character? I can if you spoil tell me, whoever I want. All right, whatever. Who's your favorite character? And then I want your favorite actor or actress. My favorite character is probably Ruth. I think yeah, that. Okay. She's got a moral compass on her that makes sense. 
and I care about that uh, in this instance. I think that I can tell you my least favorite character is is Mrs. Bird. Uh, oh, interesting. She, is, she, is she the Skylar of Ozark for you? Oh, she's worse than Skylar. She's worse than Skylar of Breaking Bad. Yeah, she's terrible. Uh, and, yeah. and I, but I would almost list her as my favorite actress because I think that she executes the role of the most hated person on the show very well. Yeah, Laura Linney is a is a fabulous, fabulous actress. I think she does an amazing job. Uh, I also think I don't know the name of the girl who plays Ruth, but uh, she's amazing too. Beautifully cast all around. Julia uh, Julia Garner, I think, is her name. Yeah. Okay. So I think I think Bateman and his team did a great job with casting. Um. Yeah. How about you? Who are your favorite and least favorite? So I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a twist here. So Ruth for sure is, uh, you know, she's probably my favorite character. Um, but one of my other favorite characters and, and is it was Buddy. Do you remember Buddy from uh, season one and two? I remember Buddy, yes. He, he was one of my favorite characters as well. And then since he um, isn't in the later seasons, uh, it's hard for me to keep him as my favorite character. But I really enjoyed him. I just thought that he was a, a voice of reason. And he had some good, uh, you know, uh, approaches to life and he was very wise, but he also had a bit of a hidden past that kind of came out at, you know, just t- dear, uh, uh, at the tail end of his, his character arc. And so buddy would be, uh, you know, one of my top two Ruth second, um, in terms of acting. So it's funny because Jason Bateman's been in my life since, uh, heck, I mean, he, he and I are almost exactly the same age. So we, I, we grew up together. Um, he, he, I don't think he gets enough credit for, for the, the kind of actor he is. And I agree with you. Laura Lenny is phenomenal. So is Julie Garner, but boy, it's, there's some things that happen in season four that you look at and go, wow, he really played that well. He's got a, a dry sense of humor and, and a dry delivery. Um, and so I, I really like him as a, as an actor. Um, so he's probably my favorite actor in the show. Uh, but my favorite char- characters are, are buddy and Ruth. I actually think that i don't like jason bateman as an actor because i think that he plays the same character on every show that he's on his seinfeld cameo and his arrested development character are the exact same as the guy from ozark no they no no, they are they're the exact same very pragmatic dry humor dry delivery guy that's all he does all right i think he's in a box and, and I know exactly how he's going to behave every single time, which is, is fine, but she's, she does a better job. She's got Laura keeps you on your toes. Uh, she's, she's phenomenal. She's awesome. I, I'm a big fan. Of her. We can agree to disagree uh, on, on Bateman. Chapter four. What's something you learned this week? All right, Pops, what's something you learned this week? Well, I learned something uh, about crows this week. Uh, crows the I, animal? C- crows the animal, yes, exactly. As the crow flies? Uh, as the crow flies, exactly. That same type of, uh, that same type of thing. So uh, th- there's a uh, e-newsletter that I get. I don't even remember which one it is, to be honest with you. But uh, it had the headline, you know, crows, can, crows know who you are. And I was like, what? So I clicked on that and started reading about it. And there's a study that, w- that occurred. It was probably in 2012. So this isn't like new news, but it's new to me. Uh, 
that crows can actually recognize and remember human faces. And that in itself was like frightening to me that, that a bird, especially a crow, which, you know, it's kind of a scary looking bird anyways. Mm-hmm. You know, you, people a lot of times get them confused with ravens. Ravens and crows are similar in, in nature, but not only can they recognize and remember your human faces, but they specifically remember you if they had a bad experience around you. So meaning, let's say that you were sitting out in your front yard and some crows landed on your lawn and you went to go chase them away. They would remember that it was you, Jordan, that did that versus me versus mom. Not only that, but they then pass that information on to their buddies. So by honking or whatever they do. Yes. By squawking Squawking. and, 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 um, and, uh, talking to their buddies and, what will happen is let's say you have Mr. and Mrs. Crow that are hanging out in our front yard. You scare them away. They go and tell their two friends and then they go on vacation. Their two friends will come to your yard and squawk at you when you come out to make up for the facts, fact uh, that the folks went, went on vacation, went on vacation. Beyond that, what happens? And this is in, incredible to me. I can't believe that this happens beyond that. Not only will the people who were taking over uh, remember you, but when they leave and that couple that went on their honeymoon comes back and has babies, guess what? Those babies who've never seen you before, uh, they know about you. That is frightening to me. Uh, So when I read that, I was like, holy crap, this is insanity. That's a good fun fact, Dad, and I have a guess as to why that is. Okay, I would love to hear it. I think that people started using scarecrows and the crows had to learn to distinguish between people that would actually harm them and something that just stands in the field because they, they wanted to be able to eat the corn. And if there's a scarecrow there, they needed to know whether or not it was a real threat or not. And uh, it's evolution in action. my friend. Yes. And eventually they learned not only to see objects, but to understand whether or not those objects were actually animated or not. And something else that's interesting about crows, as a bird, they're one of the, well, not as a bird, just as an animal, they're one of the main candidates uh, for teaching animals to communicate with human speech because uh, they're more similar in their speech patterns uh, to humans than a lot of other animals, like apes, for example. It's easier to teach a crow to talk than it is to teach an ape to talk. Which is which is uh, also kind of scary to me. They're very um, advanced little creatures, those crows. I was shocked. It made, made me go, thank goodness we don't have any crows that live around us here. Because uh, uh, We know, did in uh, Bloomington, and they we, squawked we a we lot. Well, so we I mean, must have done something. Well, your brother Taylor's not a big fan of of, um, of birds, so uh, maybe he scared them off, and they hated, uh, hated they our family. They came back to bite. Exactly. So yeah, I found that interesting. I, I did not know that uh, as I was reading it, it made me start thinking when Edgar Allan Poe wrote the, the, the poem, the Raven, did he really mean the crow? And so I actually looked up, you know, I knew that they're different birds, but how different are they? And they are semi-related. I can't tell you the specifics because I don't remember all the details of it, but, but ravens and crows have some uh, familial uh, uh, aspect to them. Mm-hmm. Yep, back in uh, back in the past. So you know, maybe uh, Edgar Allan Poe, because and they also look, you know, fairly similar. You know, if you're not up close, so maybe it's a situation where he actually had a crow that was sitting there staring at him all the time instead of a raven. So uh, who knows? 
that's that's a good good fact and it's very possible that poe got it wrong i mean it is it is is difficult to distinguish between them personally i found it is so how about yourself Uh, give me something that you may have learned this week this week uh so because a couple weeks ago there was a volcano on an island called tonga yes uh, i read about that eruption and i found an interesting metric that they describe explosions in per million units of tnt that's how they measure the strength of an explosion which i thought was weird so then i started looking into tnt into a wikipedia rabbit hole and <laughs> what I learned was TNT, which is a name for a chemical compound that I can't pronounce, so I won't try, was actually originally invented in the 1860s as a yellow dye. Like we have red dye and yellow dye put in our foods. Okay. That's what TNT was originally developed to be. And A it, food dye? Yeah. and it Well, all kinds of dyes, not specifically okay. a food dye. Uh, oh, you okay. actually can't eat TNT, so probably not intended to be a food dye. Um, right. But uh, it was invented as a yellow dye, and its ability or aptitude as an explosive was not discovered for over two decades after what? its invention. So it was just so used th- so as a dye on all sorts of things. <laughs> so, I mean, did people spontaneously combust, you know, from wearing a, like, I'm wearing a yellow sweatshirt right now. I know people can't see it, but I'm wearing one. Do I have to worry about this? Uh, this is the thing about TNT. The reason why it became so popular as an explosive is because of its stability. Similar, I mean, C4 is an even improved version. Uh, very stable. It only explodes when you want to uh, because its melting point is pretty low. Um, so you don't have to heat it up much to turn it into liquid form to put it into things like bombs or canisters. Whereas what they were using before, picric acid, had a very high melting point. And the higher you go in the melting point, the closer you are to the temperature of explosion and combustion. Sure, sure. So uh, it's less stable. Right. And so a German physicist discovered... Uh, that it had explosive capabilities and that it had a lower melting point. So they started putting it in their warheads uh, during World War I. And during World War I, England stuck with picric acid, and the number of fatalities uh, from English bomb-making was much higher than that of German bomb-making, which is interesting. So so when you mean bomb-making, you're saying... If I'm in England and I I am manufacturing the bomb, there was accidental deaths there that were of a higher amount than were in Germany when they weren't using right uh, when they were using yellow dye, as it were. Yeah, when they were using TNT. And another interesting thing is that Brian Johnson, not you, but the lead singer of ACDC, was actually making a mistake when he was saying, "I'm TNT, I'm dynamite," because those are two completely different things. Dynamite does not use TNT as an active ingredient. It well, uses see, nitro. Now my mind is see my mind is blown, as it were. What? Okay, so yeah. So in all the cartoons, when you see the dynamite and it's labeled yep. TNT pushed down, yep. those are all incorrect. There is no TNT <laughs> oh, in dynamite at all. Wow. Yeah. In fact, when dynamite was invented, TNT wasn't even known to be an explosive. Whoa. 
So, okay, so when was dynamite invented then? Uh, I don't have that number written down anywhere. I but... mean, reg- regardless, so it was it was invented at some point in time. Yeah. TNT was at that point in time uh, functioning as a yellow tie, right. and and uh, dynamite and, w- was the explosive. Only later, and it, they're used in different ways. So, for example, so nitroglycerin, dynamite is... A bunch of uh, wood chips or uh, wood shavings that are soaked in nitroglycerin and packed together, and then you light a fuse and they blow up. But TNT is a high-velocity detonation, so it's better for packing into warheads that you drop on other people uh, instead of doing it based off of a fuse. You're trying to raise the temperature rapidly and at a high speed. So how does that explode then? So so in my head, I, I think of nitroglycerin or dynamite. When you 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 light the fuse, it starts in like you said, it gets the the higher point and then it, it explodes. How does the um the TNT then explode? Like you said, it has a, a lower melting point, but at what point in time does it actually so like explode? We're talking different things. Picric acid is not nitroglycerin. Um so so the the way they explode is different, right? So dynamite explodes because you are physically lighting something on fire. Right. Um, TNT combusts uh, because gotcha. of a high pressure, high temperature situation uh, gotcha. due to the ideal gas law, which we've already done enough science today, so I'm not going to explain it. Um, well, we're going to get into that at some point in time. Sure. We can talk about bomb making on another episode. I'm sure that FBI will love that. I was thinking more in that. terms of Deflategate uh, with the Patriots. And oh, we can okay. explain why Tom Brady did not cheat. Well, maybe you can do that one. Uh, but uh, yeah, so TNT gets dropped from places and, and thrown at things at a high velocity. Uh, and you can do it with a detonator, but it's a more complex system, whereas dynamite uh, was just a highly, highly unstable uh, nitroglycerin-soaked wood shavings and all kinds of things um, that re- is requires external combustion, not a change in pressure. Although dynamite, uh, if dropped, can also become unstable and explode as well because the increase in pressure leads to an increase in temperature. That is a great lesson learned this week for sure i like that yeah. i'm gonna have to test that one out with on a few on a few folks i think yeah i think you can try that out and i will uh, i'll use your crow fact too chapter five a weekly update all right i mean we made it all the way through that's great uh so we'll wrap it up and uh we'll start with with my my love child uh this week in chess this is a segment where i will give you updates on all things going on in the chess world so that i can increase uh, the profile of chess throughout the world since we have so many listeners Uh, and this week in chess the first super gm event of the year is underway it's called the tata steel masters tata steel is a car production company out of india who i believe owns land rover uh and it's a 13 round round robin chess tournament with classical time controls which means the players get two hours uh and it's 14 of the best chess players in the world you get one point for beating an opponent half a point for drawing you get zero points for losing the 10th round was yesterday and world champion, ranking world champion Magnus Carlsen is in the lead with seven points. And Anish Giri, uh, who's my favorite chess player, 
is in second place with 6.5 points. So we're rooting for Anish uh, to get a win and for Magnus to get a draw so that they can even out in the next round. And then hopefully Anish has a chance to overtake him in the remaining two rounds. Nice. So real quick question for you. So you're saying it's the first super G for folks who are not chess heads. What does G super GM, excuse me. What does GM stand for? I'm assuming grandmasters, but I'm not sure that that's the case. That's exactly right. Grandmasters. So, uh, so chess is, is a hierarchical structure based off of a rating system called the ELO rating, which assigns you a certain number of points based off of how many points your opponent has uh, and whether or not you won, draw, or lost against them. So it's all about comparative ranking. And a super GM is anybody who has a ELO rating of above 2,600. Excellent. That sounds really high. My guess, my rating is probably one, two, or three. Uh, not really a chess guy. Yeah, your rating would be somewhere around 700. You know how the moves work, but you have no strategy. Um, my ELO rating is... 1350 and if i work hard for my entire life i might be able to reach uh 2200 and yeah, that's that sounds impressive to me yeah but that would require an inordinate amount of attention paid to it and i think anybody can do that if they put the time and they had the interest and the passion for it but to be a gm you have to basically be a chess prodigy to have started when you were really young uh, and hey, we tried, man. We we had brain. you in the chess club in in second grade, man. I was in chess club for one year, and uh, and I quit. So little did you know that jokes on uh, me. Now it's my favorite thing <laughs> in the entire world. <laughs> we tried, we tried, my friend. <laughs> All right. Hey, so 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 my this week in, I'm gonna rotate a few things as we go through. Uh, my passions in life are, you know, I like music. I like, uh, sports. I like exercise. I'm going to rotate through a few different things this week. I'm going to go into the exercise uh, aspect of things. Uh, if you don't know this, if you know, Jordan and I, you may know this in, or if you know us, you may not know this, but Jordan and I are both going to do something for the very first time upcoming here in April. We are both going to run a full marathon for the first time in our lives. And so as you can imagine, that requires some level of effort in terms of training. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was just kind of give you a kind of an insight into the kind of training that I'm doing and the things that I do as it relates to the marathon. Uh, Jordan is doing following a different plan and he's doing things a little bit different than I am, but uh, that's probably based on a couple factors. One, that he's far younger than I am and his body can recover. So he could probably go out and run the marathon right now. For me, uh, my marathon training is based on a plan uh, done by Run With Hal. And that plan allows me to set exactly the number of days that I am going to run per week and how many miles I want to be able to run. And so this upcoming week, I'm doing something I've never done before, 15 miles on Sunday. So to me, that is the thing I want to make sure you guys are aware of. And that is what I am doing this week, 15 miles on Sunday. We'll talk to you next week and let you know how it went. All right. Good update. Uh, and we are not sponsored by Run With Hal, but if you like the app, uh, uh, I would recommend it to anybody who's uh, looking to get into running. And uh, that that should wrap it up on this week's episode. Uh, thank you for sitting through it and, and being along for the ride. And uh, we'll, we'll see you when we're back next week. Take care.
concludes side one. To continue listening, please remove the cassette and flip to side two.